The thing with Copilot is it seems to make our building blocks bigger, but it doesn't seem to alleviate any of the actual complexity of building a software system. It still has dependencies. You can still have side effects. Yes, you're listening to another episode of 20-Minute JavaScript, where we talk about, wait for it, the JavaScript. This episode, as usual, is hosted by Open Replay, an open-source session replay tool for front-end developers. If you're looking for a way to understand how your users interact with your application, check out Open Replay. I'm Fernando Lolio, your host and local cat lover for the next 20 minutes. But today, we're going to be breaking that rule. We'll be overstepping that 20-minute limit for a bit, but I promise you, it's going to be worth it. We're going to be talking about cold quality with Christian Klossen. So Christian, thank you for being here. Welcome, and please introduce yourself. Okay, uh, my name is Christian. I work as a technical agile coach, with, uh, contrary to the name, it has nothing to do really with agile coaching, or very little at least. It means I like the agile manifesto, but it also means I focus heavily on the technical excellence part. Uh, so I do refactoring, and I teach teams to, to do more programming and uh, behavior learning development, stuff like that. And I've also written a book on the, those topics called Five Lines of Code. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going we're gonna to talk about the book in a bit. Uh, but today we have you here to talk about code quality and, and, and code smells, which by the looks of it, uh, it's a big part of your, of your show, essentially. Yeah. Uh, I, I love talking about code quality. Yeah. Very interesting topic. Absolutely. So do I. I mean, I think that everyone has an opinion. Every developer has an opinion of what quality is for their code anyway. Let's try to define that. How do you, considering how, how subjective the term quality is, how do you define it so that everyone, or at least within the same team, everyone uh, agrees on the same things and, and, and measures the same aspects of the code? Yeah, I, I, I think there are primarily three avenues of, of quality that are prevalent in, in, uh, in code. Uh, the first one is performance. That's the one that most students uh, tend to think about when they think of quality. It's like this code runs really quickly. It's unreadable, but it's at least yeah. it's a uh, very <laughs> high performance, which is very rarely the type of quality I work with. Uh, the next one is uh, security. Code needs to be secure. And there are, there are different levels of security here. And, and again, there are specialists in this field who spend their whole career thinking about security and how they can make code better. And that's also not my, my avenue of, uh, of it. The final one, the one I spend most of my time doing is it has few bugs or is it unlikely to have bugs or resilient towards bugs? And, um, and I spend a lot of time thinking about that and trying to search for that. My ho basically my whole, uh, whole adult life has been an obsession with how to get closer and closer to, to bug free code. Uh, and I also did my thesis on that topic. Wow. The, the holy grail of, of yeah, yeah, developers. Yeah. yeah. And how we can make it more human accessible to get this perfect code or yeah the holy grail and i found that it's i think 90 percent, maybe more uh, of all bugs are due to uh, non-local invariants so uh, it's what functional programmers would call side effects it's what uh, object-oriented programmers would call them um, well invariants probably uh, properties that the programmer needs to keep in their head while they're coding and the more we have we tend to do that the more our code is uh, has an affinity for that the more likely it is that we're going to break something because we forget it simply is a very complex domain we're working in, and that makes it harder. Absolutely. So the, the, the less we depend on, on our brains, the better it will be. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and on that note, um, have you 
tried or seen the effects of tools like uh, Copilot from, from GitHub when it comes to writing code? So Copilot is interesting. It's something I've discussed uh, quite a bit actually recently because everybody uh, is fascinated by the yeah. tool, I think is the correct word. Um, to me, I, we, so we talk a lot about uh, cognitive load and cognitive theory and stuff when, in my work, uh, which means I actually talk more about humans than I do about code, but <laughs> it is code that's the subject. Um, and it, he, in this domain, we use something called the Kneffen model. Uh, it's impossible to spell because I think it's a Welch word or something like that. Uh, I'm not sure. But uh, in that, we separate things from how disordered they are or how orderly they are, which domains we work with and how we how we probe these topics. And I think the, the thing with Copilot is it seems to make our building blocks bigger, but it doesn't seem to alleviate any of the actual complexity of building a software system. It still has dependencies. You can still have side effects. You can still have all of these different things. So essentially, I think what Copilot, what Copilot solves could be solved with a library in code. It doesn't actually make it easier to build complex software, but it does make certain parts of it a little bit quicker. I also um, saw a tweet once that I, that I like to quote where they had done a study and like 2% of time was spent for developers writing code. The rest was reading, understanding, talking to people, all of that stuff. And so optimizing those 2%, I don't think is going to change the world in my, in my opinion. Absolutely. Interesting. Very interesting uh, point. Okay. Moving on. Focusing on bugs. Focusing on, on, on side effects. So uh, are we talking about code smells here or are we talking about something else? Code smells are... I think largely they're often trying to alleviate this problem because other people than me have spotted that it's about non-local invariance. So uh, there are a lot of different types of code smells in my book. I also refer to things that people have not conventionally called smells, but everything that uh, it tends to make code more resilient to errors, I would call sort of a, a code smell or is a characteristic is the code smell. Um, so the, the classic examples are something like magic constants. Um, it's something when you put it in, you know exactly what you're thinking of, why it's that, or for most people, except yeah. for that one magic constant in Quake. Um, and But then you forget it over time, right? When you read it, it's like, why does it say this weird number or hexadecimal representation here? So that's one example. There's probably the most basic example, and everybody knows you shouldn't have magic constants. At least give them a name. Um, and the same goes for long methods. There's something where you have to remember what happens at the start. When you get to the end of the method, you've forgotten if it's a few hundred lines or even I've seen methods of a thousand lines. It's it's insane. Um, and, and then uh, for a more untraditional one, um, I, I've also uh, quoted uh, like um, mixing queries and commands. I, I uh, doing something um, in the same method that's returning something, you're changing some state. So if you're doing both things at once, it's hard to keep track of what's actually happening. Uh, iterators do this a lot, where you call next and it both moves the cursor and returns the line. Interesting. In the space of JavaScript, would you say there are specific uh, smells that we developers tend to have in your code? Yeah, this is a great question, especially because I'm not a JavaScript expert. I don't consider myself a JavaScript programmer, although I consider myself a TypeScript programmer. So I do, I'm very closely related. Yes. <laughs> um, but I like the tool support and the type system and the tool support that TypeScript gives me. I have written actually a, a blog post that I also use as a game when I was at university or a drinking game where you ha have one line of JavaScript and then you type it into the console and people have to guess what it does. 
And if they guess incorrectly, they have to, to take a shot. And so uh, I've done a little bit of JavaScript. The first thing that comes up when you talk about JavaScript and bad coding practices is evil. Um, eval can destroy any analysis, anything you try to remember, anything is different if you use that. So obviously don't use that. But on a more um, subtle and uh, sort of more um, sophisticated note, probably, there is also using var and let. And I would always recommend people use let after it was introduced. Um, I started coding JavaScript before. Yeah. Um, but the scoping rules of var are not what people expect them to be because no other language has backwards scoping like that. Um, you can define a var at the end of the method and nothing will complain when it sees it. It will just be undefined, which is crazy. Who, like, <laughs> how, how do you come up with that? It's, it's like, supposed oh, be, what if it could... It's supposed to be making your life easier, you know? It, no, because <laughs> even in the C days where you had to declare everything up front, it's at the top of the method. It's yeah. not at the bottom of the method. I don't yeah. understand it. It's crazy. <laughs> Um, another thing I would say that's unique to JavaScript or fairly unique is uh, people tend to use type coercion a lot more in JavaScript than they do in other languages, especially if they do an if and then just want to check that something's been initialized. They, they just put the variable name and nothing else. And in my experience, that tends to... Uh, you have an invariant there that you're not using the other falsy values such as null or the empty string or the empty array, I think sometimes those... Um, and, and if you aren't using those and you can sort of prove that you're not using those, that's fine. But in my experience, I've, I th think I've done that a lot of times where it turns out later in the project, I've actually used those values and now the if statement starts to break. And it's very hard to spot that error because you're like, the, it, uh, even in TypeScript, it doesn't help you, right? It's still, so I like to actually explicitly check against undefined and null. And I've started trying to do that consistently to try not to make it more visible what I expect this code to do and make make my invariance clear. Um, another thing that gets me every time in JavaScript is using a function instead of fed arrow and then it, it overshadows the this. Yeah. And it's so annoying. And nobody <laughs> like what what yeah. So I always use fed arrows now. I never use function without interesting. Them. Okay. Um, only on the top level where I can name it. And then I just use fed arrows a lot. Uh, and the, something I've been struggling with uh, lately is the async await when you mix it with um, with exceptions. Because async await is great. It's a very easy way to work with promises. And it's just, it's very seamless. But then if you start throwing something and you've used async await, then the context will be dropped between each function that you that is async. So you'll get the super annoying JavaScript error where it says, Oh, you have an uncaught promise thing, uh, rejection. This is not supported anymore. It's deprecated or whatever. And you'll be like, but I, I catch it at the top level, but it's just <laughs> two levels deeper and it doesn't, it doesn't work. So you have to, every time now I do an async function, I always start the function, the, the function with a try and end it with a catch rethrow. Um, right. which is, it's boilerplate. It does nothing, yeah. but at least it's trivial to write so that it keeps the same context of the exception. It's, uh, yeah. It, the, yeah, and the last one is to be careful with regexes. Regexes are very seamlessly integrated into JavaScript, um, much more so than other languages, I okay. think, except Perl maybe. And it, But they're very difficult to read, so we should just be very... I, th I think the same about regexes that I think about constants. You should at least name them um, so that people know what is it. I also like... That's actually one of the places where I like to put a comment saying... Um, uh, this comes from this specific thing. Like I had a regex replicating how a Docker image can be named recently. 
and and I put this is the the link to where the Docker image thing is defined, so that other people can see why I did this weird regex. Right, that makes sense. That's that's something I've never thought about uh, because it's like you said, uh, regex are so integrated that you just you know start using them, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, I essentially I guess I was expecting everyone to read them and understand them, but yeah, not everyone likes them. Yeah, um, so. yeah, and it, and they're difficult to read. Like I have a, I did this bug challenge uh, once at work. That's also on my blog now, where you can, uh, where one of the challenges has a, this huge regex in it, and the and the exercise says you have to find out what the bug is in the code. And the second people saw the regex, they stopped trying. They just went away. <laughs> and like, no, it's an easy exercise actually. Yeah. But they're like, no, it, they, they just give up immediately. And it turns out it's an unused variable. And it's like that you, it has nothing to do with the regex, right? But they yeah. ga- gave up because of the regex. It's an amazing uh, uh, and very dangerous property of regexes. You just scare Absolutely. people yeah. off. It's the effect it has on, on, on the developers. Absolutely. But, but it's, they're also very powerful too. I mean, they're complex to read. And because they're, they're so complex, they're so powerful. Uh, they should be used with care. Absolutely. But they shouldn't be dismissed just because they're there. Yeah. No, yeah, and I use them for transforming simple data a lot. Like when I have a comma-separated value file, I do regex with like a ninja. I mean, so yeah. much uh, regex stuff yeah, all over the place. It's just if they're in maintainable code, it should be documented somehow yeah. what it's doing. I agree. Can we just backtrack just for a second and talk about yeah. eval because you went through it very quickly. And uh, I think that, I'm pardon my, uh, my expression, but all developers like us, uh, know about it because we used to use it back in the day. Uh, you know, maybe it wasn't the right choice, but it was the only choice we had to make you know some interesting behavior. But I don't think it's that known right now. So can you quickly tell uh, our audience what the evil function is, what the, is it supposed sure. to be doing, and why is it so evil? Yeah, so uh, JavaScript as an interpreted language actually has a way to interact with the interpreter, and that's sort of different from most, most compiled languages, which a lot of people use. Um, so uh, in JavaScript, you could directly interact with the interpreter by calling the eval function. It looked like a regular function in the language, but it would actually take a string and then treat it as if, if it was code. So you could define new variables, new. Uh, you could have an entire program written in a string, and then give it to an eval and it would do it. And it used to be popular for doing things like importing stuff, uh, other libraries and and uh, different things. But before we had, I think it's what's called preloading now, where you inject a, a script tag. And now we have require and import yeah. and it's much more integrated and much more seamless. But we used to use it for good for things like importing other code. But it could also be used for anything else, like injecting things uh, and doing cross-site scripting and doing all these sort of nefarious things as well. Yeah, because it's really not checking or validating anything. It's just taking your 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 word for it, so to speak, yeah. and and accepting any code you you evaluate. So don't use eval, okay. even if it's there. All right, moving on. I think we already kind of covered this, but let's be specific: one liners versus expanded code. Where do you start with that? Um, I used to do. Uh, quite a bit of a uh, streaming and I did a coding game on the stream where you had a challenge that was called do the shortest code that you can solve this problem. <laughs> okay. And I would always pick JavaScript uh, because I can do it a lot more compactly than, uh, than uh, TypeScript, especially because uh, I'm a, I'm a programming language nerd. Uh, and, and I've also studied some of the weird things that you can do to make the code is minified. Like I can basically do some of the minification in my head. Okay. 
which makes it completely unreadable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's be honest. But it's also it look it's fascinating to look at. Uh, and if you just fire and forget as in a game, it's 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 okay. Um, so I, so I work primarily as a consultant where I visit different teams and I'm there for a very short time, usually six months at the most. And for that reason, I can't have any preferences basically, um, because they'll be broken all the time. I'll see all these different teams. They're doing things slightly different. So I'm very good at adapting to whatever I'm seeing. And so I don't really have uh, any, any preference for myself, but I will say, as I always do, that it's about working in a team. And your team should make the decision. It shouldn't be an individual decision. It should be, if your team is good at one-liners, by all means, do the one-liners. I'll, I'll adjust. It won't be a problem for me. And if, it, if you like expanded code, I had the same question uh, not too long ago from someone who said, should we use all these uh, list uh, comprehensions and, and all of these fancy new functions that are coming out? And I'm like, well, is your team very young? Are, they, are most of them, do they know them already? Or is it a big investment to learn all of these new techniques? Because... There's nothing wrong with for loops, really, um, except they can go out of bounds if you're not, uh, like, if you use them mindlessly. But uh, if it, it's it's about the team productivity. Anything that makes the team more productive is good. Anything that makes people struggle or create a divide in the team where some people use one thing, other people use the other, that's bad. Doesn't work. All right, all right. I wasn't expecting you to 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 be so uh, politically correct. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Yeah, no, but it's, I work with so many people and, and all of them are typically brilliant when you get to know them. And it, so you can't judge them by their code. And some people are just really good at maintaining code that is really hard for other people to maintain. But so long as they're not doing it from a, an egotistical point of view, right. I'm, I'm fine with it. It's cool. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. What about uh, code comments uh, versus naming uh, conventions? I, I, I actually had a conversation on Twitter uh, a few days ago about that. And This person was telling me, well, if I name the variable correctly or the function name correctly, that it states what it's supposed to be doing, then I don't care about the comment. And I was thinking, well, but what if, you know, you have a very long or complex method? Is your name going to be like 50 characters long? I mean, why are you going to name it? So um, I know where I stand, but what, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, here I'm not going to be as political. Okay, <laughs> good. I don't think. Uh, <laughs> I like to say there are, there is, I don't like comments. As a, as a general rule of thumb, I don't like comments. I really try to avoid them by using, a, one of the things would be doing, as, as you described there, giving the methods better names, making breaking the methods down so they're more in a tree structure where each method is sort of not very long because I've broken it up into meaningful pieces. And then we move up in abstraction uh, with the method name each time, which tends to weed out a lot of the details and so the method name doesn't get so long. Um, in a, in my book, I describe five different types of, of comments. Um, there are outdated comments, there are wrong comments. Out, uh, there is um, outcommented code, which should just immediately be <laughs> deleted if you're using version control. There's no point in doing yeah. that. Never check it in. Um, then there is the, the code that, it, the, the comments that are good are the ones that document an invariant. Uh, so they're like, as I described before, if I have some regular expression that is following something else, that's a foreign thing, that's not in the code base, that is by, by its very nature, it's a non-local invariant. So I have to put a comment. So every time that I cannot eliminate some invariant, then I put a comment. So it's not like I use zero, but I work hard to try to minimize it. I really like what, um, what uh, Kevlin Henney has, uh, has said, like, um, The, the, a comment should only say what the code cannot. 
so it's again, it's about making the code work for it. And, and I feel sort of the uh, naming conventions are sort of similar, I think. And maybe it's because I'm also an author that I think the code should be, it's a writing craft. So it's about communicating intent and, and having good names and stuff. And I really don't like having common prefixes or postfixes or anything. Um, Kevin Henney again has this example where he says, why do you call everything an exception? You know, if you're throwing it, it's an exception. <laughs> I mean, it's from the context. Uh, Java does this thing crazy. It's yeah. everything. IO exception. Just call it. Throw IO thing. And Thread George has a similar point where he's like, people uh, prepending or something, manager, controller, all these uh, useless words that are about the code and not about what the code is actually doing. It's like, don't do it. Handle, calculate, all of these things. We just, we just prepend and then it's fine. We can, we can just, it's a, it's a very lazy way of naming things. And when we are on the topic of naming, I think there are three properties I like from a name. Uh, it should be honest. It should do what it should describe the intention of the function. It should be complete. It should try to capture sort of what the function does as in a whole. But then the favorite thing is that it should be from the domain. And that's something I've stolen from Dan North. And I just read his article, Code in the Language of the Domain. Again, it's an amazing uh, two-page thing. It's It has so much depth when you start unpeeling it. But it says that uh, th- he points out there is no real-world thing called a linked list or something like that. An array might exist in the world, but it's not what we call an array. Yeah. In the- so and when we're using these words, we make the code harder for for the people we're working with and the business problem we're solving to to communicate with because we're thinking in these terms and they're thinking in these terms and they don't always align. And so I like to wrap everything in, in things that have the language from the domain so that my code looks like a conversation with a domain specialist. It makes it much easier to communicate and it makes onboarding a little bit harder though, you have to, to note. But if you're if you're doing long-lived teams as you should be, it's not it tends not to be a problem and it's it's a lot easier to work with like that. Okay, interesting. Okay, so you answered my question, uh, my follow-up question, because you, you, you're saying then that the code should speak to, to the developer and should tell them uh, everything they ca- it can to uh, about what it does. But then mm-hmm. I was going to mention that what about the cognitive load of having to read through code, even if it's well-written, um, compared to the, the one that you get by reading normal English or, you know, your natural language in mm-hmm. a comment. But then again, if you're aptly naming your variables and everything to within the domain uh, of your problem, then I guess that mm-hmm. problem goes away, right? I mean, you're not having to translate the concept of an array or a linked list or, you know, a class or whatever yeah. into the domain. It's already there. Yeah. It's, it comes from usually I start by having an, an interview or a conversation with a, with a domain expert where they describe like, t- tell me step by step what I have to do. And then I write down with their words, even though I tend to not understand them. I'm not very good at learning all these new domains, yeah. but I'm very good at data modeling. So it's, so I write down the steps and then I put them in the code, even though, you know, they're not what I would say. They are what I need to say when, when they start breaking or what the customer will describe to me. It's this part of this thing. Um, and so I try to to use yeah to use that make it easier and then having short functions it's yeah. it's not as extraneous for the cognitive load. Interesting. Honestly, uh, I'm, I'm I have to admit I'm the kind of comment first name name is second, but you kind of you know made me think about it in another way. So thank you for that. Uh, back to co quality. What tools 
uh, do you use? Uh, because I'm sure there are tons of tools and this has to be somehow automated uh, or, you know, if you want to be objective enough when you present the code quality or, or you say uh, the code quality of this project needs to be increased for whatever reason, you have to present a number, I guess, or a set of numbers and they can't just be, uh, you know, pull them out of your hat. So w what kind of tools do you use for that? Um, I, so I am a bit old school in that regard. I, I don't like to rely on tools. I like to think of myself as sort of a master craftsman who creates a chair and I don't want factory chairs. <laughs> okay, um, okay. I know, I know that it scales very poorly. Uh, I like to do a lot of work with education and with making people feel and see the same things that I do. And then, you know, code quality will automatically improve if you give people the 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 skills and the, the tools to do it but uh, but from i do know of some tools because obviously i also work in the real world with some organizations sonar cube is like sort of the the top uh known one uh, everybody uses sonar cube for static analysis and code quality metrics i think i also discussed their algorithm for how to, how they do cognitive load in in the book i do this is how you can calculate it if you want to and it's based on cyclomatic complexity but it's sort of more sophisticated based on how cognitive uh, theory has shown that human think um so i do discuss sort of how you can put a number on it um another uh, very common one is um semgrep or I, i don't know how common it is but it's one i'm very curious about where you can put in your own patterns sort of for how what code defaults you tend to have and then you can make this tool you can teach this tool to find the types of errors that your team is prone to so you can say we t we tend to put uh, an if true and then not get it removed you can just put that in and say look for this but it can be more semantic more okay. sophisticated than just the regular grep um and a, and a third one that i think is very cool but i unfortunately haven't got the opportunity to use is adam tornhill's uh, code scene Uh, which comes from the book also, uh, Treat Your Code Like a Crime Scene, where he does things with the Git history and he looks at what are uh, the files that are likely to have errors in them. And then he can do sort of this forensic analysis on the code, which is really, really cool. It sounds, I really want to try it someday. Really cool. All right. So you focus on teaching them, on, on, on making these teams see, like you said, see what you see. What kind of workflows or strategy do you recommend then? Uh, because I'm sure you have some preferred ones. Yeah. Um, we, so I like also to set, tell teams that uh, having a clean code base and, and uh, removing code smells is like weeding in a, in a, in a garden. Uh, it requires continual attention to keep it down. It's going to spring up. There's nothing. You, it's not like there is a do this once and then you're just right. done. Uh, even if you have a lot of seniors who are very experienced and, and do, um, you know, uh, do write good code, It, over time, uh, you'll have these fluctuations where really a clean code base is the one that's most, um, most, um, can most easily, uh, do the changes that you want to do with it. So if your code base is geared towards the types of changes that are coming, then it'll be very easy in a clean code base. But sometimes you will have guessed wrong. Uh, and that's just inevitable. The, the market, the people, the software, everything is unchanging and chaotic. So, uh, So when that happens, you will have technical debt of some sort. So we have the technical debt will come in no matter what. So the, the point is just that we need to continually go back and sort of readjust. Is this still the direction we think? Is this still the direction we're thinking? And trying to readjust it with, with refactoring. I, I tend to say there are three big blockers for people not doing refactoring in the, in the amount that they should. Uh, first of all, it can be they're lacking skills. They simply don't know how. 
And, and I tend to solve that with increasing their communal programming, doing um, either ensemble programming or pair programming so that we get more of the seniors to share with the other seniors and with the juniors and how should this code look. And it also helps to get a lot of conversations about, oh, I saw you did that thing. I thought that was bad, considered bad style. Are we doing that now? Should we have a discussion on the team about that? So it brings a lot of things into the light, which I really like. Another thing that could be lacking is the culture. They don't have the time. They're busy. Everybody's busy. And it's uh, like software developers never have any free time, really. Um, and so I like to to introduce a concept we call Improvement Monday, where we spe- we reserve the whole Monday to just do improvement work. And it means the developers can choose completely themselves what they do. Uh, there are no guidelines and there are no... Um, I, I've never said no to a suggestion from a developer um, because they tend to want to fix the things that annoyed them last week, which is perfect because that's what I want them to work on. Uh, so it's like, uh, as Woody Sewell would say, creating an environment where excellence is inevitable. Uh, they can't do anything wrong on this day. And I've had so great success with it. And the reason it's Monday is because if it's in the middle of the week, people are already in product mode and they have all this momentum running and they'll tend to still have that in the back of their minds. They won't relax with it. They won't be as uh, as creative. So we place it on Monday. And it also means that people are excited in the weekend to get back to work because they're like, this is my improvement day. This is going to be so awesome. I can do whatever I want. And they can do experiments. They can do improvements, all of that. And the final leg, which is more simple, it's uh, if people don't know what to refactor, if they don't know what the problems are, they simply are not uh, uh, senior enough perhaps to know the code smells. Uh, and the code smells are sort of fussy and there are a lot of them and you have to, they're an acquired taste, I would mm-hmm. say. And that's uh, exactly where, where my book comes in and tries to make it more simple. All right. I love the, the, the improvement Monday. Definitely. I think uh, it's an idea that needs to be mm-hmm. uh, copied across uh, other companies. Yeah. It's, I stole it from, uh, or I, I didn't steal the Monday concept, but I stole the improvement time in, from the DevOps handbook. They say that 20% of time should be reserved for non-functional requirements. Right. And I think even the Toyota production system go as high as 60. So it's uh, at the low end with 20, but it's something that's at least doable in my experience yeah. in organizations. Yeah, and it's not that big that will uh, scare product managers and you know clients and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just exactly. one day at the week. Interesting. Okay. So uh, we mentioned, we, we uh, danced around the, your book. So tell us about your book. Tell us about uh, what Five Lines of Code is about. Yeah, uh, it's uh, split. There are sort of two parts uh, in the book. Uh, and the first part is a wonderful example. It's a 2D game that we take the full code base for and we refactor it. And th- through that journey, we discover the uh, some rules that are not code smells, but related to code smells. They're simpler. They're easy for for a junior person and they're easy to remember and easy to get started with. So the idea is you read this, you can do something better tomorrow already and start improving. Uh, and it's, it's just, a, I'm, I'm very proud of the first part. It's a, it's a really cool example and it has all the refactoring patterns and has all of the things. It's a self-contained thing. Uh, so that one is, is, uh, is very focused on individual skill when it comes to code quality. And it's, it's a great tool for juniors or for people training juniors. I've also heard a lot of good feedback for. Uh, and then there's a second part, which focuses more on the team disciplines, sort of like what are the principles that are important in a team and, and when working with code. And if you want to do your own rules or if you want to make modifications, you should keep these things in mind. And that's more widely applicable. I think seniors will probably get more out of that part than out of the first part. Um, so, But it's all about taking refactoring and making it more accessible to more people. 
faster. Nice. Because the the the, the other books on the, this topic are basically masterpieces. They're very very good, but they're also difficult to read and even more difficult to apply. And so that's what I try to do: make a sort of a half a step towards that. Cool. All right. Uh, perfect. And in the show notes, we'll have a link for, to it and a discount code count as well. So make sure to check it out. Awesome. All right. So we're on the last leg of the interview. I'll, I'll just ask you uh, a set of quick questions. So what's the best advice you had uh, you ever received? So for, for my life, the biggest, uh, p- uh, the biggest impact advice I've gotten was from my mentor at university. And he said, the key to being consistently brilliant is hard work every day. And he was trying to sort of mock me because I wanted to be the smartest kid ever uh, all the time. I tried really to be smart. And he's like, it's not hard. You just have to work really, really hard for the rest of your life. (laughs) And I wouldn't recommend that for anyone. It's a really hard lifestyle, but I started doing it and I've been doing it for so long now. I almost never relax. I'm always working. But it does mean that I tend to get quite lucky quite often. We we tend to also say luck favors the bold. Uh, But in my case, it's more the hardworking People get lucky a lot more often. And so it's had a lot of impact in my life. All right. Yeah. Cool. What's the most exciting project you worked on? Um, I would have said something where I did uh, when I was uh, quite a bit younger, where I tried to automate things. But right now I'm actually working on a really cool new platform where we're trying to make uh, serverless uh, more accessible and work with it in a new way. And it, we're going to launch it pretty soon, which is really cool because I've gotten to use both very complicated type theories and really cool modern tools. And I think it's going to help people in the real world. But I'm not quite ready to launch it uh, just this second. But but stay tuned for that. All right, definitely will. Uh, last one. Uh, what is one thing you wish you knew before you started coding? Uh, I would say first make it work, then make it better. That mantra and that thing being engraved in you is going to save you from so much trouble. When I was starting out coding, I would always try to write the perfect code once. You know, It's like you have only this many type strokes and then you, you cannot uh, do anything <laughs> else. But that's not the case. Yeah. Uh, and if you try to do it right and make it work the first time, you're, it's so much harder. It's like it's exponential. They multiply together. And you end up with this, with this, uh, you locking yourself in where you can't type anything and you're just stuck completely. So I've sort of uh, paraphrased it to make it a, a little more brand aware. So I, I like to say code with your heart and then refactor with your brain. Interesting. Okay. I like that. I like that. Uh, it's funny. I, I love these three questions uh, so much because you get some really interesting nuggets from all the guests. But the last one, mm-hmm. the, the, this this same advice has been repeated several times already. So it's so crucial yeah. and, and it's so common to, on, all, on, on all developers, on new developers, we just focus so much on, on making it perfect the first time around. And it's just impossible. Yeah. I had a talk at the university where I was like, this is why people don't like university uh, people or people who come straight out of university because you spend basically five years, um, or in my case, seven years learning all the ways you can write code in a wrong way, all the ways you can be wrong. And that means you get, uh, you get super scared, right? I don't, I was terrified to do anything, super anxious afterwards. And I used, when I, before I started university, I could code like the wind. I would just type stuff because I didn't care. I didn't know all the ways it could be wrong. So it's, it's very common and it's very, very dangerous. Absolutely. Okay, that's all the time we had. So please tell our audience uh, where they can find you uh, online and we'll just put all those links in the show notes. Sure. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Medium where I have my blog. I'm on GitHub. I'm on most places where developers are and I'm called the same thing everywhere. So it's at the Dr. Lambda. And um, 
And that's just it. All right. Perfect. Thank you again for being here. It was really interesting. I hope our listeners will get some some insights into code quality from this talk. And if not, they can just check out your book and learn even more. All right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. All right, everyone. Thank you. Catch you on the next one.